Chapter 6 of On the Trail of Don Quixote. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. On the Trail of Don Quixote by Auguste Jacassi. Chapter 6 The Campo de Crigitano. Sitting on a bench under the entranceway of the inn, the largest we have as yet seen, I get an idea of what such a place as the Venta de Cardenas, or that of Quesada, may have been in the old days. In spite of the inevitable dirt and slovenliness, the place has an unmistakable cachet of prosperity, and the cheery innkeeper and her helpers move about busily. In front of us, some female servants are sewing, repairing sheets, fashioning garments for the master's help. A buffoon's sole occupation is to sweep the floor, while a colleague goes after him sprinkling it the whole day long. The big fat ama, with a face like a Roman senator, strides all over the place, keeping a watchful eye on details and giving imperative orders in a voice which sounds like a clarion blast. The amo, with bunch of keys dangling from his belt, sees to the filling of wine bottles, to the killing of poultry, to the cutting of meat. The cooks, at work under our eyes, are two old witches, who alternately disappear and reappear in the smoke of the wood fire. The ama, who in spite of her bulk is here, there, everywhere at once, comes up behind them, often unexpectedly snatching stewpans, tasting the food, adding ingredients, and upbraiding the witches in the grandest style with that magnificent organ aforementioned. However, the real ruler of this fonda appears to be a spoiled little boy, hardly three years old, precocious and saucy, the Benjamin of a large family. He keeps his special criada busy, a handsome young woman in orange skirt, red stockings, and black shoes, oh, luxury, who looks the picture of helplessness when, blushing prettily, she casts frightened glances toward the ama at every fresh evidence of the little rogue's mischievous spirit. Alcazar de San Juan and its fonda having passed out of sight were nothing more to me than one of the souvenirs of my journey added to the others, a sharp negative indelibly preserved in the camera of my brain when we caught sight of the windmills of the Campo de Crigitano, one of which it is said our knight met with in his celebrated adventure. Poor Quixote does not seem so mad after all when one first sees this row of mills set irregularly on the crest of a hill and looking like nothing one has ever seen, more like a collection of queer primitive toys stuck here by the weird caprice of a lunatic. As one approaches and views them one by one, these clumsy-looking affairs, propped up like very aged persons, are thoroughly fantastic. No wonder the worthy knight mistook them for giants. On his native soil, Cervantes's book takes an added pungency. How much it is of the country! How true to life are the characters, descriptions, and language! one needs to live here among the people to know. There is a great charm in stumbling at all instants on things it has made familiar to us. 
For example, not only do the inhabitants of certain villages of La Mancha dress today like Sancho Panza, but all Manchegans are minds of those old sayings in which the wisdom of generations is crystallized into proverbs which, like him, they constantly use to sum up tersely a situation. Near these mills we stopped to inquire of a water-cart driver, our shortest way to the Pueblo. Ezekiel got the desired information, and then, Brother, he said, is it water you are carrying? Fine, drinking water, yea. Don't you want some? Thanks, no, our bottle is half full still. Cascara, it must be hot. Have some of mine, answered the man. Our bottle is filled with sweet, fresh water, and Ezekiel calls the man who is going back to his cart. Here, here's a patequilla, a cent, and we are obliged to you. No, brother, I don't want any money. I am glad to give you good water, that's all. But we have to live by our labor, and you have to drive many miles to get that water. Bueno, but it's better to make a friend than to make ten dollars. Then, catching a glimpse of me, All right, brother, he says to Ezekiel. I see the caballero can better afford to give this money than I to be without it. And so I'll take the money. I buttered the patequilla with a cigarette and added the valued courtesy of offering him light from my cigar. He stood caressing our mule while giving us again instructions as to our road. Under the scant protection of a handkerchief wound turban-like around his head, his fine brown face was aglow in the sunlight, and the blood gave a flamboyant hue to his firm cheeks like the rich color of a hard red apple. His black eyes flashed, and the veins of his neck and forehead bulged out. He was the picture of a superbly healthy, careless, happy creature. After he had gone, Ezekiel said sententiously, That patequilla won't do him any good, senor, for para dar y tener seso es menester. To give or to keep hath need of brains. He'll drink or smoke it as soon as he reaches the village. Campo de Crigitano, named for the productive land, the rich fields around it, campo means field, is one of the three or four rare specimens of the best Manchegan pueblos. In spite of its well-to-do air, of its big houses, some of which have glass windows, stone carvings, and ornaments of wrought iron, it preserves as strong a local flavor as its humbler sisters. Being fortunately removed from the railroad, it remains, in spite of its prosperity, an old-time community. Having variety in its picturesqueness and dignity in many of its buildings, it is good to find it Manchegan to the core, in no wise different from the poorest villages of this land of enchantment, where the old costumes, habits, and old houses have remained unchanged for ages, for centuries. The campo is dozing when, at high noon, we meander through its precipitous street toward the posada. Quevedo alone, the master par excellence of picaresque descriptions, could have done justice to the types we find there. The fellow who stood at the door with a bandage around his head, which he sprinkles with some old woman's ointment kept in a greasy pigskin vessel. The infirm amo and ama, each greater surely in breadth than in height, the collection of half-naked hangers-on escaped from nowhere but the pages of 
Pablo de Segovia, the great ruffian. The dingy interior, parlor, dining, sleeping room, what was it, or rather what was it not, with its indescribable dinginess, filth, and flies, is a place not to be described. But there we had to rest under the slanting low roof with its roughly hewed beams, cobwebbed all over. In choosing our place we pass by or walk over muleteers, peddlers, swineherds, stretched on the bare floor. On the walls, harnesses and sombreros are hanging on nails. In the corners are sacks of grain, packages, wineskins belonging to the sleepers, and guarded by little curs that snarl silently when one gets too near, and would bark and bite at the slightest attempt to touch their master's property. In the weird light, a half-light, what a fine picture this interior makes. Two stables are near us, one for the mules, the other for the pigs. These last are grunting, the mules kick, and lean cats, prowling about in their search for food, mew. A mule chased from the stable picks her way quickly among the snoring sleepers, not one of whom moves, while her master, trudging behind with the harness, urges her on with a peculiar, noisy shout, ending in a hiss. No interruptions wake these sleepers whose slumbers are deep when chance favors them in the twenty-four hours, four-fifths of which are spent in labor. Resting until the last minute, they are up and at work in an instant. There is no stretching of the limbs, no washing to be gone through, no clothes to put on, a drink of water, and they are behind their mules under the broiling sun, the crooked stick in their hands, wide awake and singing. We start at three in the afternoon, harnessing the mule in the midst of a drove of pigs, a hundred or more, the village pigs which are being gathered together to go to the fields under the guardianship of boys. After following a beautiful road for a league or more, and passing the sanctuary on the hill where reposes the miraculous image of the patron saint of the campo, Our Lady of Crigitano, we strike across wheat fields, and in a couple of hours reach the barren country, sparsely dotted with clusters of trees, where Don Quixote met with one of his most pitiful adventures, the first sight of his lady Dulcinea, changed by malefic enchantment into a coarse peasant wench. Quite melancholy are the approaches of Toboso, whose few houses, built largely of sculptured fragments of ancient important structures, plainly tell the decadence of the renowned and prosperous city, which, according to an official report, had nine hundred houses in the reign of Philip II. There is nevertheless a winning charm, a sort of dignity to the place like that of a deserving unfortunate who preserves some gentlemanly demeanor. Its dilapidated houses strewn about two stern, forbidding-looking churches appeared, in spite of their scars, clean and well-kept. Its ravine-like lanes were free from the noxious sights which had grown so familiar to me as inseparable adjuncts of Manchegan streets. In Toboso I also found that exotic wonder and exquisitely clean posada. It was late when we saw it, and I hardly dared trust my first impression. 
but it stood the test of a detailed survey in the full light of the next day. Imagine Dutch cleanliness in La Mancha, floors of courtyards and rooms shining, barren of dust, curtains at the little windows, mats at the doors, and, inappropriate places on the white walls, pathetic attempts at decoration in the shape of religious prints set in colored paper frames. Pieces of furniture, chairs, chests, and tables curiously carved, and the array of brass bowls, spoons, and ladles of quaint and rough design in the kitchen were beautifully polished. But there were no servants in this poor inn. The family, father, mother, and two daughters, kept the place in order. The women were dignified and kindly, and as they went about their work in the house, an atmosphere of gentility hovered around them. Their simple manners, devoid neither of repose nor of grace, were pleasant to watch, and then, looking clean and neat, they made me feel less far from home. The father, a six-foot man of about fifty, with huge frame, big shoulders, clean face, and a peculiarly low forehead, spent his time alternately in giving orders and praying. On our arrival we found the family finishing supper, and before our inquiries were answered, the four creatures stood with heads bowed low down on the table, chanting an interminable litany, and kept us waiting until the long ordeal was at an end. As soon as we could make our wishes known, the women, excited and fluttered at the advent of guests, disappeared to go and prepare our supper, when the father straightway started on his hobby, religion. He was a fanatic, with the fierce intolerance which is usually considered by foreigners one of the strong traits of the Spaniards. I must say that, until now, I had seen nothing of intolerance among the Manchegans, but this man more than made up for it. Don Quixote, discussing chivalry, was no more enthusiastic, not a whit less harebrained than this giant innkeeper when in vain against the bad ways of the present generation, against its indifference to church attendance, its non-observance of religious practices, in short, its lack of what was formerly termed the religious spirit in Spain. He would illustrate his ideas by quotations from theological books, cross himself when pronouncing the name of God or the saints, and he would occasionally break in upon his reasonings to ask us our opinions of some prayers to be used on special occasions of temptation and illness, which he had selected from the old manuals of piety. This world was going the way of the tempter was the burden of his song, and he pointed to the fact that in the last century every other house in Toboso was a church, a private chapel, or a convent, while the government, having taken away lands and fields and convents, from monks and sisters, there was hardly any monks or sisters left, and only two churches. He remembered how beautiful were the holy services he used to attend in his youth, with the magnificent tapestries, gold and silver vases, and rich ornaments which made the altars like visions of paradise. All these riches had to be sold little by little, and thus the church was now bereft of her power for good. Ezekiel's opinion of our host was expressed figuratively in a Sancho-like fashion, made more contemptuous by a shrug of the shoulders. 
Well, senor, he talks like a linnet out of a mighty small head. A sad lot was that of the women of the house with such a master. He meant well, of course, but his was an iron will, and everyone must agree with the spirit of his doctrine as well as with his minute observances. Thus Maria and Juana, the daughters, in passing before each saintly image, each prayer cut from the pages of ancient missals, adorning the walls all over the house in their little frames ingeniously fashioned of straw and gilt paper, had to bow and stop, audibly reciting a pious ejaculation. While in the midst of their work, the hands of the giant would beckon, and business had to be instantly abandoned for the recitation of some special prayer for the deliverance of slaves or the conversion of the faithless. Guests were less fortunate than the cat and dog, the only inmates enjoying full liberty in the house. There was no escape possible from the tyrannical ways of this singular amo, who, caring little about the things of this world, would let his guests starve or go away without paying, if only he could improve the opportunity to make them religious after his own heart. That was the reason for the lack of patronage of this otherwise admirable place. When in the evening, seated outdoors and hearing songs of merriment in the neighborhood, we wondered what was going on. It is from the other posada, said the amo. May God burn it to the ground, for devil-possessed people run it, and idolaters alone frequent it. Of the rough and brutal character, proverbial in Cervantes's time, of the inhabitants of Toboso, Morisco refugees from Granada who had not had time to outlive the rude, fierce traits of their Arab ancestors, I saw no trace. But the sole industry of the town now, as then, is the manufacture of large jars, tenajas, made of the tufaceous earth which abounds in the locality, and the Tobosan tenajas, with their graceful swelling lines and curves, are still renowned in the Castiles. The principal church is the same one Cervantes described, and the blind alley where the roguish squire insisted that the princely castle of the fair damsel was, still exists. I could not miss the opportunity of walking wide awake into the romancer's dream, while the village was wrapped in silence, for all the inhabitants were asleep, reposing at full stretch, as they say, and, with Don Quixote and Sancho, pass in the shadow cast by the great pile, and, looking at the belfry tower, remark with Sancho that the pile was a church and not a palace. The scene was just like that of the book. No sound was heard but the barking of dogs which stunned Don Quixote's ears and troubled Sancho's heart. Now and then a jackass brayed, pigs grunted, and cats mewed, whose voices of various sound were heightened in the silence of the night. We start at midnight on our return journey to Argamasilla, passing the Campo de Crijitano before daybreak, and going down the slopes to the meadows of the Guadiana, and cross the river on a bridge whose length shows what mighty proportions this punny stream is wont to assume during the rainy season. Toward noon we come to a quinteria, large farm, and Ezekiel goes in to ask permission to enter, a privilege never refused, 
but which must be asked for and granted, like everything else in this country, with the elaborately polite formulas sanctioned by custom. Our cart enters the square, spacious courtyard, with low buildings on two sides and walls on the others. We find a hearty welcome in the kitchen, where eight field laborers, with the inevitable long blades in their hands, are sitting on low stools, energetically discussing the contents of a big soup-pot, the national puchero. The cook, a bashful young woman, who blushes prettily on the slightest provocation, makes a good contrast to these dark-skinned, muscular men, who, teasing one another in a good-natured way, seem to have the best time in the world. At the entrance door a band of famished cats and dogs, too well trained to dare to approach, look on with flaming eyes, uttering half-suppressed whines. Everyone treats us with extreme courtesy and kindness, and I doubt if in any other country the stranger would find such manners and such tact among a set of low laborers like this. After lunch I was shown into a little whitewashed room, dark and cool, where over a stone bench a couch of mats had been arranged, and I was left alone for a much-needed bit of siesta. As it was harvest time the place was lively, but most of the year the casero, farmer, or rather guardian of the farm, is alone with the dogs and his Winchester, and the large gates being closed, the Quinteria becomes a fortress. The casero then does patrol duty to prevent damage to the fields and possible raids against the stores of grain, provisions, and wine. In lonely places such as these, caseros have an exciting life, and few of them are there who reach an old age. This one thinks the game worth the candle. It is a fine life, sir, he tells me, while caressing his Winchester. Plenty to eat and drink, some money besides, and then a chance to use one's gun. After the siesta we resume our journey over the familiar plain, where far away before us our goal appears as a faint mirage. Argamasilla impresses one differently as one approaches it from some new direction. Now it looks like an oriental city, with its brilliant white walls set at the end of an alameda, a long oasis of grand poplars with an undergrowth of fig and lemon trees. The whole picture has the color of the orient, the same sky, the same warm purple haze over the horizon, and the plain is as flat and tawny as the desert. The poplars alone are out of place, and palm trees are lacking to make the likeness complete. End of chapter 6